My name is Rick Firestone. My name is Ben Bugale. And you're listening to Pixel Project Radio, a video game podcast where we play through video games, talk all about them, analyze them, uh, and apparently try new things with our microphones and recording setups, which I am doing now. So hopefully it sounds okay. Can we reveal to them that this is the first time that we've never seen each other doing this? Uh, Yeah, Ben and I got into a big fight, and we have... uh, declare that we'll never look each other in the eye again only on special occasions it's a different kind of fighting everyone Gosh. we'll tell you when you're older no we're uh we're going off camera today due to some internet issues because uh that's life it is life but we're happy to be together even like this even without me seeing that sweet sweet handsome face of yours um i'm gonna make up for it uh, with a little bit more of a sultry tone that I'm throwing your way. But but today we're talking about a most fascinating game. And Rick, I am glad that you um I'm glad that you've suggested this game, though I don't know how you stumbled upon it. Yeah. Today we are talking about the Unfinished Swan. This was an indie game by Giant Sparrow and Santa Monica Studios that was released in 2012 for the PS3. Uh, believe it or not, Ben, I well, I mean, this is very believable. I'm not about to say something that's totally unbelievable, but uh, this was adapted and ported to PC in 2020, which is how I heard of it. That's really fascinating. So wait, what, what was the original year that this came out on the PlayStation again? It came out on PS3 in October of 2012. I'm kind of shocked with that revelation because i mean and granted i have all the information here but i just i didn't have it readily available in my noggin i for the style of game that it is i i am perplexed in the best possible way by that information yeah this one has been on my list for a long time it was one of those that i picked up in a steam sale for like i don't know probably four or five dollars and i knew it was a short game this this game I mean, you can beat it in like an hour and a half if you know exactly what to do, but it takes, I don't know, like, how long did it take you, Ben? Like three hours? I think about three hours. Now, granted, there were some moments where I stepped away from my computer, so like I maybe two, two and a half, but um, to that end, I, I feel like I might have not been able to process this game the way that I usually would like to, but, you know, that's just... As a church musician in Advent, you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying. I was just flying by the seat of my pants. Yeah, you can beat this game in a leisure two and a half to three hours. It's it's not a big one. And I, I thought it would be a perfect one for the podcast because it is shorter. And as we approach the end of the earth, uh, any, any uh, moments of leisure are well appreciated. But I, I didn't know anything about the story, and I gotta say, it's it's another one of those happy coincidences to go out uh, of 2021 with this kind of a message. I I find it very very timely. You know, it's I was I was rather shocked by a lot of this game in a good way. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to give away too much because we're not like into opinion zone yet. But like, I was. I was rather pleased overall. Well, why don't why don't we jump into Opinion Zone with our uh, one-sentence reviews? You down with that? 
They are patented and yes. And always precisely one sentence. Always. Uh, So I will start by giving significantly more than that. Told from the lens of a children's tale, the unfinished swan takes a minimalist and often deliberately vague approach to style and gameplay. Nevertheless, the game's themes shine clear. It is a story about self-discovery, a story about the value and importance of the present, and a story about finding acceptance in growth. This is a 9 out of 10 for me. Nice, nice. I I loved this game. Yeah. That's justified praise. I feel kind of weird because like, I feel like we've been doing tons of games that I've just really been vibing with, but I mean, I guess that's a good problem to have, right? No, I don't like it. I, I need you to, to take dumps on games, Rick. This is not, this is not acceptable. You're not, al- you're not allowed to like games, Rick. Just kidding. What's the point of games, everybody? I ask myself that. Ben actively wants me to have a bad time. I do. No, I would never wish that on you, nor would I wish it on anyone. Well, yeah, no, I don't think I'd wish it on anyone. Um, If you'd like, I can share my review with you. Please do. The Unfinished Swan is a game that translates well for kids of all ages. Set in a world of polarized, cell-shaded visuals, you find yourself on an unexpected adventure as a precocious child That's almost guaranteed to make you smile along the way. For me, this is an 8 out of 10, maybe an 8.5 out of 10. It really didn't offend me, if you know what I mean. It was very pleasurable, this game. I think pleasurable is a fantastic way to describe this game. One of the things that I was thinking about regarding this game, just after finishing it and letting it breathe a little bit, is this game is written in the style of a children's storybook, right? It's uh, certainly visually, but also in terms of the prose that it uses. And we'll get into that. But I I found myself thinking and really appreciating how good children's authors need to be able to say a lot without writing a lot. You know what I mean? They write very little and they write very simply while maintaining these overall and overarching themes that are, you know, maybe profound is a bit strong, but but auspicious to growth, we'll say. And I I don't know about you, Ben, but I I think this game does that very well. It, It doesn't use a ton of flowery language, and there's really not a ton to playing it, but it accompli- it says what it's trying to say in a very real and a very effective way. It's sort of like an adult watching a children's movie. Like, if I was five years old and I was watching Toy Story 4. Did, have you seen Toy Story 4? Believe it or not, I haven't seen 2, 3, or 4. I... So, we'll go back to Toy Story 1. So, like, you know, the thing about Toy Story 1 is that whenever I was small, um, I didn't... I couldn't recognize that Woody was selfish. Like, I couldn't recognize a lot of things because I was like, what, between three and five somewhere in there? Like, I was just watching an animated movie like, golly, wow, like this game for a, for a child that's not able to process complex emotions and those sorts of themes. Um, I think that this game would be fun. I think it would be, you know, very puzzle-y and problem-solving-ish, and I think that that would be 
great, but as an adult, it forces you back into that realm of being a child and really kind of hits you in the face with something that, you know, it's one of those things that people struggle with, you know, the the overall theme of this game. Before we jump into themes, um, because I think that's an important thing to talk about with this game, uh, just tidying up the development, we mentioned that it was developed by Giant Sparrow and published by Santa Monica. Uh, Giant Sparrow also created the game What Remains of Edith Finch, yes. which I think we've talked about doing that before, right? Uh, I I think we still would like to do it, but that is the other game of note that they've done. I don't see any other games that this game has, uh, that this company has really dug into. No. Um, I had heard that they were initially signed on with a three-game contract. I don't know... Oh whether or not that had changed or been altered. But Santa Monica, they have been publishers for a lot of really well-known games. Yes, God of War, Twisted Metal, they've done all kinds of stuff, which this game really kind of felt like beat for beat. It was somewhere between Twisted Metal and God of War, you know what I mean? Yes, very. Uh, it's, it's between those two as Kansas is between California and New York. Yeah, yes, yes, it's it runs parallel to these to the, Yes, 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 Rick. This game was originally developed as a sort of a student project, pretty similar to how Superliminal was. Hmm. Uh but of course it it went on um I think it may have been entered in some sort of like student competition and that's how Giant Sparrow got its start because this was the first game that this company did and uh it got generally favorable reviews. And I think that that's fair praise for it. I mean, if you're looking for a game that's going to, like, blow your mind or, like, you know, rock your socks, or if you're looking for something that is riveting, this I don't, I don't know if this game is necessarily for you, but if you're looking for something that pleasantly challenges the brain and makes you think outside the box and uses new and unique forms of getting around i mean it's you know it's just that it's it's meant to it's about the journey not the destination you know what i mean man you're setting me up for so many good segues here (laughs) Uh, what i was gonna say is this game generally the lowest reviews i've seen have been around five or six the highest i've seen have been around nine um from ign because this game has a little something for everybody uh and does have quite a lot of water. I was going to say too much water, maybe. <laughs> I think the biggest criticism that I've seen levied against this game is that it feels unfinished. And many reviewers... <laughs> yeah, many reviewers not only chose to use that in a very sincere way, um, but many reviewers did feel like this game didn't elaborate enough on certain mechanics. And the reason that I was happy that you mentioned that it's about the journey, Ben, is because I was going to say that I think the critics may have misunderstood the the theme of the game. So why don't we dive into themes? Ben, what did you feel was or were the central theme or themes of this piece? Started is better than perfect was one that really kind of hit me upside the head, which is to say that you should always begin something and it's worth striving to finish it. But, you know, it's not a game that says 
you know, it's not a game that really emphasizes doing things perfectly or completely. And I think that that's, I think that's really important for us to all hear because whenever we take that pressure off of ourselves, generally it yields better results. At least that's been my experience with projects and, and art. What about you? Yeah. So I like what you said. Started is better than perfect. It, it reminds me of the joke. There's a running joke in academia, but you can uh, tran- transition it into whatever project you want. That a good dissertation is a started one. A great dissertation is a submitted one. And a perfect dissertation is neither. And Ouch. I, th- <laughs> I think, I yeah, thankful I never had to do that. But I think started is better than perfect is a really good interpretation of what this game is trying to say. Similarly for me, one of the themes, one of the biggest themes in this game, I thought, was the the notion of the journey being more important than the destination. I I felt like this game really made an effort to prioritize, emphasize, and make central the notions of growth over destination and, you know, to a lesser degree, things like impermanence. But uh, yeah, at the heart, started is better than perfect. The journey is more important than the destination. And growth is uh, a crucial and important part of life. All very well put. Yeah, there's... There's such an emphasis, and I think this is where the game probably fell short for people, which I, I disagree with those, you know, necess- you know those, those kind of points of view. Um, the game is not built, I mean, sure, there are chapters, but it's not, it doesn't feel, you know, like we played, we, we played and covered Bioshock, right? There are monuments in that game. This game doesn't feel like it's chock full of monuments. It feels like you are living an adventure and you're experiencing these things in first person, and you're interpreting a story parallel to the one that you're living. Yeah, it's it's not about big, shocking, traumatic sorts of things. Yeah, yeah, you know, just just yes. I think you know what I'm saying. I know what you're saying. Um, it comes back to the notion that we've talked about on the show before, meeting a piece of art where it's at. Yes. Right? You 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 need to 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 your point Ben, you need to meet this piece in an appropriate manner and an appropriate manner is not looking for some revelatory experience, some sort of mechanically heavy gameplay or etc. For what this piece is, it is I think and I th- I think you'd agree incredibly successful. And that's why I disagree with those reviewers that say that the game feels unfinished um, because it was never put out or meant to be some puzzle-heavy platformer. And in, in fact, I I was reading that there was a uh, tweet from the developer. Uh, oh, and we should mention the lead developer's name. Olruski, right? Ian Dallas is the writer and director. Thank you. Yes, Ian Dallas. Uh, He had tweeted or retweeted this tweet of like a toddler. I don't know the toddler's exact age, but a toddler playing this game. Probably 19. Sure, that sounds about right. (laughs) Um, But but he retweeted that and he said something along the lines of, you know, he, he knew that he made the right decision not to make these puzzles incredibly, you know, challenging. 
because we we should say this this game exists kind of between genres, but a puzzler it is not. No, it's Rick, you've been to France, right? Yes, yes I have. So, you know that there's a lot of extraordinary food, right? Of course. But you also know that there's some times where you're just walking about and like there's a baguette or a pastry or something and you just kind of pick it up and you stroll and you enjoy it and maybe you sit on a bench. You know what I mean? I think I see where you're going, yeah. That's this game. You're not sitting there waiting for some some sort of soup that you, you know, you you enjoy and you go, "Wow, that changed my life." Like the experience, I mean, you're kind of getting two experiences at the same time with this game. You're playing the game, but you're also hearing a story. You know what I mean? And feeling a story. It's sort of like if somebody just defines their life on social media by like, you know, you can look at someone and just see like all of these posts, but they're just vignettes of positivity. Generally, when people share them on social media, they're not the full story. There's a lot more goodness and hardship and everything else that people don't see. But those are the actual journey. You know what I mean? And this game, I think, kind of puts that on display, puts that under the magnifying glass rather than saying, hey, look at all of these big, gigantic things. Not that it doesn't focus on some of those things in the story, but you know, I think you smell what I'm stepping in here. More or less, yeah. I, I, I think I understand. Yeah. yeah. We'll get into the story here in a bit, but... Some other things to talk about are the music and art style. Uh, ben, which do you want to talk about first? Let's talk about the art style. Yeah. So what did you think of the art style? I've heard it said that cell shading is future proof. And so whenever you told me the initial year that this came out, I went, of course it did. Because cell shading is future proof. Um, I loved it. I thought that the use of the 2D for the stories, but then like the 3D around you and the fact that you created the environment to some degree. I, I don't know. I have a lot of thoughts. What are, what, were, what are your thoughts, Richard? Yeah, the cell shading aspect is cool, but this isn't cell shaded in the same way that Firewatch was. Right. This, uh, the, the unique thing and the thing that was being touted as its unique feature when it was first released is the idea that you are sort of creating your own level. And that ties into the main verb of the game, which is throwing ink. So in the first level, when you first start the game, you are in just a completely white space and you have to figure out the action button, which is, you know, left click or right trigger, whatever throws a black ink splotch. And that ink splotch will show you what's around it based on what it hits. If it hits the floor, it'll splatter. It might hit the wall. It might hit a chair. It might hit the stairs. And in that way, with those ink splatters, you're sort of building your own level in this really minimalistic black and white sketch style. And I think that's just terrific. I I love this so much. It's, you know, yeah. I mean, and I know we'll get to this when we get to the story, but, you know, you start this game off and you're just in like this white room. And you throw this ball of paint, and that's your guiding light. Like, what? It's it's you recognizing your boundary by, you know, 
quote, making a mess, end quote. It's cool. It's really cool. Really original. Yeah, and again, it goes back into that theme that started as better than perfect, because what you're never going to have is a perfect view of those sections. Truly. Because it, it doesn't it does not reward you for just painting the whole area black because one, that would just take an obscene amount of time, and two, when it when you do paint something completely black with those ink splotches, like let's say stairs, you can no longer really see them. So yes. it it's not only the mess that you're making, but what is existing around it in that negative space that creates the full picture. And again, all of this ties, this level design and these mechanics tie back into the main themes of the game, which is why I think it's so good. I would agree. It's it's really about balance, especially in the beginning, about having the right amount of darkness and light. The chiaroscuro, as it were. Yeah, really cool. So yeah, Rick, you're basically covering the mechanics here, right? We've got our left click. It's left click, right? It is left click. That fires your projectile, we'll call it for the time being. WASD, WASD for motion. Uh, Spacebar is jump. You know, that's, if I'm not mistaken, Rick, that's pretty much it. Yeah, that's it. All you're doing is walking, jumping, and throwing. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not trying to get away from the artistic side of the game because I know we're going to go cover music, but... You know, you, you started talking about controls, and I thought, well, let's just take 30 seconds and lay it out. No, yeah, lay it out we did. It was an appropriate pivot. As it's far as, <laughs> as far as the levels go, you do get into more levels. There are a total of four chapters in this game, each with five distinct areas except the last one. So it's not all going to be the same shtick of white blank canvas and splotching ink. You do move into a sort of white and gray castle area. There are water elements of vines. Then there are dark areas like a forest. It does change it up a little bit. And we'll, we'll sort of touch on those as we get into the story, I think. But that kind of tidies up the art style. Oh, um... One last thing about the art style is that the cutscenes, quote unquote, in this game are presented like they are straight out of a children's book with pages and uh, text on a page instead of captions and pictures and things like that. Uh, I I mean, again, I'm, I'm going to sound redundant, but I loved it. What did you think? No, I mean, it's appropriate. It's charming. It's on brand i mean the, again when i say that there's like nothing offensive about this game it it sticks true to itself which i'm sure some people were looking for it to do something else but you know similarly to super liminal right it's like it's not trying to be anything other than what it is and i think that level of authenticity is what makes this game succeed and so of course when we're hearing a story and when we're playing as a child which is apparent by some of the child like sounding grunts that the child makes when they jump, um, etc. You, of course, the turn of the page is appropriate because we've been seeing pictures and having page turns. You know, exactly. I I couldn't have put it better myself. I think you could. <laughs> I think so. I think that leads us to music.
So what did what did you think of of the music, Ben? It it was pretty spot on again for what they were trying to do. Um, it was used well atmospherically. You know, you land on the title screen and it's kind of playing with this little kind of Liddy and Diddy, and it, it it kind of sounds curious. It sounds like it's searching. I mean, it it just it fits so well. It I would almost say it fits perfectly. Perfect's a hard word for me. What did you think? I'm I'm with you. I enjoyed it. It was composed by a gentleman named Joel Korolitz, who got his start with this game and then went on to compose, among other things, Death Stranding and the brand new Halo Infinite. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm seeing that now. Yeah, so really, really good track record for this guy. <laughs> um, but yeah, I this... It was it, it, the music is very much a companion to the story. It doesn't overwhelm. It doesn't ever take center stage. It, it it it's functioning in really some of the best ways that music can, and that is to elevate the story that is surrounding it. Of course, you know, speaking of music, whenever it's accompanied with a story, I'm not trying to go all Richard Wagner here and. You know, do that whole spiel. I think you should. I think you should go that way. Starting with the racism. There we go. Perfect. This is an anti-racism podcast, everyone. And when we say <laughs> anti, we mean anti. Surely that doesn't need to... Well, maybe that does need <laughs> to be said, honestly. It ought to be, because anti is different than, you know, saying that, like, we're just kind of neutral, because we ain't. Yeah, no, it it serves the game well. It it wasn't um like there's some games where the music kind of takes over and they're not bad games necessarily, but this one the music sits in the background and uh paints its own sort of uh atmosphere without being in your face. And uh I can only hope that he took some of those charming little riffs and ditties and um you know, use of piano and like chimes and everything and Put it in Halo Infinite, you know? Yeah, yeah, this, uh, it, it seems appropriate for Halo Infinite. Uh, these games are really cut of the same cloth. Exact same, yes. Got to pilot a wraith. Yeah, uh, there's also a prominent teabagging section in this game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is. Uh, I guess the only other thing to touch on would be the use of color, because that's kind of important. Um, as we said, the main colors of this game are going to be shades of gray, mainly black, white, and gray. But color does play an important factor because your projectiles, your your little ink blots, they change. The black ones, they're just ink. You eventually get blue, which is sort of like water balloons, which serve to, you know, they... They splash on the ground, but they do evaporate, so it's not permanent. And you also use them for the vines, which uh, I was not a fan of, but we can maybe touch on those when we get there. Touch or climb, you know. You've also uh, got one more style of projectile, and that's, uh, if memory serves, it's sort of a different shade of blue and also red, which lets you create blueprints. Yes. And... And then finally, there are prominent uses of yellow slash gold, which typically show up in the form of footprints of the swan. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> and they generally indicate that you're going the right direction or it's a direction that you should be going. Yeah, thank God for those because in a room full of white when you have no idea where to go, they're kind of nice. Yeah, it's very helpful and it goes back to the notion that, you know, the creator didn't want this to be a game for 32-year-old computer wizards. <laughs> I don't know why I used that term. We're I liked not in, it. We're not in 2001 anymore. Um, this game wasn't designed, you know, for, for grown, grown-ass adults. It was designed for all ages. So having some sort of guiding principle is helpful for everybody. Yeah, and I, 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 that's why I said in my review, kids of all ages, because I think that there's something important and enjoyable in this game. I, th- I think you can find something at literally any age. Absolutely. So we've, we've sort of talked about everything in a broad sense that we wanted to before we jumped into the story. We'll talk about the themes more as they come up, um, as well as certain mechanics and levels. But we should mention, before we go on, uh, that this is going to be entirely uh, spoiler-filled as we progress. Because there's just no way of talking about the rest of this game without spoiling the experience. And while it is still a good experience, if you do know what happens, it's really just best to go in blind, like super liminal. Agreed. I'm, I'm trying to do a pull quote of that quote that's above the catacombs abandon is it abandon all hope all ye enter here is that it i don't remember yeah i don't remember either i took a picture of it right after our tour guide told us not to take pictures in there so well it's like the last place you probably can or should you know sure we'll we'll say that you know it it was pretty funny during the tour as soon as they said that and turned their backs everybody's phones came out and were taking oh, yeah. pictures of the literal remains of, of humans that surrounded us. Mm-hmm. Very somber experience. I would love to go back. It's really sobering. Immediately ruined by exiting into a gift shop, though. Yeah, you go up all those stairs, and then you're in a gift shop, and you're like, wow, okay. With, with shirts that say things like, I went to the catacombs, and all I got was this stupid shirt. I don't I don't remember seeing that, but I kind of hope that's there now. No, I, I, I genuinely remember seeing shirts. And maybe it wasn't that, but it was they were shirts of a similar ilk. Just really, uh, really distasteful. I heart catacombs. Call me a like, bonehead because I just left the catacombs. <laughs> I, I went to the catacombs and all I got was a boner. Oh, oh, oh my God. <laughs> Oh, rest in peace to all of those that lay beneath there. Um, Honest to God. What a what a service we are doing for your memory. So, I think, uh, Ben, do you have anything that you wanted to touch on or any final thoughts before we sort of talk about the game? Apparently the game was started, development began in 2008. So they really, um, I don't want to say they took their time with it, but, you know kind of came to be over some time and that's okay that's a good thing um otherwise rick no i think it's time to kind of move into plot and some story here let's do it
So it's revealed to us that there is a young boy by the name of Monroe whose mother has died recently. She was a painter of sorts, and one of her things was, and of course this is what the whole unfinished swan thing is about, is that she never finished any of her paintings, though she had like over 300 or something um, paintings that were incomplete. Monroe is told by the orphanage that he has gone to after being left alone that he is only allowed to keep one of the paintings. He chose her favorite, which is a painting of a swan, but the neck is missing. So like, and I mean, not the whole neck, but like the middle chunk of the neck. It is a literal unfinished swan. Yes. Which, why would you not finish the middle of the neck? But that kind of adds to the whimsy and the beauty of this game. So there's a night whenever Monroe wakes up in the middle of the night and he finds that the swan has escaped its painting and he chases the swan until he finds himself in this absolutely strange sort of mysterious world of of paints and such it's it's really quite the quite the way to begin the story i mean they they give you the right background and then they're like good luck and just dump you in yeah really no need for a tutorial here they sort of dump you in as the story does and tying in with the themes of the game lets you explore and sort of figure out your own way. Always going back to the journey, right? I mean, absolutely. And we're always brought into that journey by the sound of a goose honking, or I guess it's a swan. I'm stuck on the Untitled Goose game. My apologies. Oh, I called the thing a duck a lot throughout the game. Like, I would see it, and I would be like, there's that goddamn duck. And then, it, yeah. it, like, to the point <laughs> where it felt it felt like I was being, like, I was calling it a slur, you know, is is calling a goose or oh god, here I go. Is calling yeah. a swan a duck like is that a slur? Well, that would imply that a duck is less than a swan, which I don't think is necessarily the case. But mispronouncing, misrecognizing could be seen as offensive in general. I D K L O L. Um but yeah, so in in this world, um we're basically following the swan, not goose, that has escaped the painting, and we are guided by honks and little patches of golden footprints. Right, right. And the story, the way the way this game works is the story is sort of presented in storybook form. That is to say, we find pages from the book by throwing ink onto golden letters. Each of the first letters of the first page are sort of stylized in that golden, bold way. And when we find one, we throw an ink blot onto it, and the storybook page manifests. They're kind of inserted throughout. So the way that we're going to do this is largely talk about the story after we get through the levels maybe with the exception, I guess, of the, the final level because that sort of ties it all in together, mm -hmm. simply because it will be more cohesive and flow a little better that way. Yeah. I was about to say, does that sound good to you, listeners? But uh, you don't have a choice because we are recording this before you hear it. Ah, so ah, 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 ah. I was trying to be scary, have scary laughter, and it just never works. You're not a scary guy. I'm a nasty guy, I'll tell you that right now. 
No, you're a nasty guy. You're all kinds of guys, but you're not a scary guy. Thank so you. We s- <laughs> hey. So we start off in the first main sort of hub uh, level area called the garden. And in the garden, we've got three little subsections. We've got the statue garden, the watchtower, and the first castle. And these are all sort of in that white space, find your way with ink style. And we come to realize relatively quickly, and we will get to this in the story portion later, that we are basically in the remains of like a fallen kingdom. And that's the world through which we are chasing this swan that, again, I know I know it sounds weird that its head is there, the middle portion of its neck is gone, and then there's the rest of its body. It's floating as if the middle section is there. So I don't want you guys to think it's just like this headless waterfowl that's traipsing around like no it's all it's all in one piece it's just unfinished right right (laughs) it's not it's not quite as horrific as you might imagine with a part of its neck missing um Mm. it's just like when they erased uh portions of their limbs on that spongebob episode with doodle bob yes so one thing that becomes clear very quickly in this game is that you know, as you're making your way through the level, it's not just a horizontal pace. There's also verticality into it in the form of stairs and ladders and such. And oftentimes what you'll need to do is look back upon what you've already done to sort of see the general lay of the land and where you need to go. And I think this is cool in two ways. It's cool in a practical way. That is to say, you need to see the general lay of the land. You might need to see different paths. You might need to see where balloons are located. Mm -hmm. Maybe put a pin in that because I think we forgot about those. We did. But it's cool in a metaphorical sense too because you're always looking back at what you've created. You're Mm -hmm. always, you're never looking, I mean, you are looking forward towards the end goal, but it becomes very important to sort of look back upon what you've done. And that, that ties into the king's, final speech at the very end and in a way that I think is is beautiful. I absolutely agree with you. Um, and I love you talk about verticality. I love the fact that they throw this in immediately. So we're we're in the the guard the statue garden first, right? And that's a very, very horizontal um level. Whereas when we get to the watchtower, which again is still in chapter one, that's when we start to play with verticality and with some almost like portal-like dimension styles. And I I thought that was really cool. Yeah. So pivoting back just real quick to balloons. Please. They are the game's collectibles. That's pretty much it. (laughs) Great job. We'll see you later. You can use them to buy toys, they say. Yeah, I I love that they call them toys. I didn't try to buy any, so I don't even know what's there. Oh, did, did you not even check them out? I didn't know. I finished this game at like 12.03 and had to promptly go to bed. You uh, you can buy like a sniper rifle that lets you shoot your paint. You can buy the fire hose. You can buy an ability to clear all of your paint. You can uh, buy a balloon radar so you can find more balloons. Really? Yeah, things like that. That I feel like that's going to put the game up to like a nine for me. And I need to go back and play it again. Goodness gracious. Yeah, there's a lot there. You can even unlock the demo... Uh, that originally was out in like 2008 for this game, but I didn't do that. 
when you said a sniper rifle, I was like, Rick's lying. This can't be. And then he kept going. I was like, oh, my God, wait a minute. No, they, they call it a sniper rifle, and it, its description is like, you know, shoots far and wide, more or less. Um, but it's really just a way to aim your blobs and get them shooting in a horizontal line, because as you throw them, they kind of arc just as they would in real life. But these balloons, uh, to collect them, you just throw your blobs at them, whether it's ink or water balloon or whatever, and it'll just bump off of them, and it'll say, yeah, you collected your balloon. So not super critical to the story. It's there for folks that want to do a collect-a-thon type thing. Some of them are in plain sight. Others are hidden. So... That is another element of the game that is there if you choose to engage with it, but you certainly don't have to. There are a lot of balloons. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there are a bunch. Like a butt ton of balloons. Um, It's cool. You hit them, and they just float away. They make that satisfying balloon sound, and then they just... You hear a little bell, and then... It's like, you found a balloon. And I was like, I'm the balloon master. And then I learned at the end of every level, it was like, you hit one out of 18 balloons. And I was like, well, never mind, everybody. <laughs> you are not the balloon master. That's what and they then told it shows me, like a It shows like a bowling alley strike screen of, of you as the bowling ball and you just deflate. And then the Halo announcer comes on and goes, deflated. You speak... My comedic love language. So where to from here, Rick? You want to keep talking about uh, the Watchtower? Uh, I mean, I I suppose so. This whole first level, I thought about this more in terms of like overall chapters mm-hmm. rather than like part one, part two, part three. Yeah. Um. So I don't. I mean, unless you have some stuff to say, I don't have a lot to say about anything in this first chapter, with the exception of more color beginning to enter once we get into part three, the first Mm -hmm. castle. Yes. And that kind of goes along with the story too, which I mean, we'll, we'll get back to, but color begins to enter in a way that allows you to see the surroundings and the landscape. Once you get to part three, because that's when we see the King's castle and the huge labyrinth that he has built. Yes. Which honestly super impressive, but we don't get to spend a whole lot of time in it. And that did bum me out a little bit. I wish I wish there was more to be done in that giant labyrinth. In fact, I would actually you know, it'd be nice if you got all the balloons and they're like, "Well, here you go. Good luck." That guy, I'd take that. Yeah, that would be a nice like mini game or extra game mode. Yeah, I agree. Um, But no, Rick, there's really, it's such a fleeting game. There's honestly not much to even talk about. It's, again, like, not to throw it into, like, the the pastry baguette France thing, but, like, you kind of, like, well, tell me how that baguette is. Tell me how that bread is. Well, it's yeasty, and it's kind of warm. I guess it could be better with a little bit of butter. You know what I mean? There's not... There's not too many dimensions to really dig into in the individual levels within the chapters. Right, exactly. So I guess then we can move on to chapter two. Chapter two is the Unfinished Empire. 
it sure is. And we've, we no longer have our paint balloons anymore. If I'm not mistaken, this is whenever we get into our water balloons. It sure is. It sure is. We've got six parts in the unfinished empire. This is the longest chapter. We've got the empty city scaffolding new growth, the palace, the sea and the bell tower. Mm -hmm. This section actually contained some of my least favorite aspects of this game. And those would be the vines. How did you feel about the vines? I loved the vines. All right. What did you like about the vines? I just like the fact. So I stopped caring about them. I was like, oh, I need to place my water precisely. And basically I was just like a machine gun of water balloons. I was firing them everywhere. Um, Always like right near the vine, but like wherever I wanted to go, I just kind of clicked and it was like, that's what it sounds like, everyone. And, um, and, uh, the vines grew like crazy. And I was like, yeah, carry me, carry me. You know, I, I don't know. I liked it. I liked the vines. They were fun. They were, they were kind of creative. Um, but what, what was frustrating for you about the vines? What was frustrating for me was, I mean, it was two things. Part of it was that sort of machine gun, just click, 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 click the screen as much as you can to get the vines to grow because there was less, it felt like there was less strategy to it. That's fair. But that that's a minor complaint. The biggest thing for me was the controls on the vines were just bad. Like I got, I got stuck so many times on the vines and... It just, I didn't feel like I should have got stuck, but I was like inside of the wall or suddenly falling off the vines into the water, which by the way, if you fall into the water, it makes the loudest splash I've ever heard. (laughs) It is ungodly loud. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. But yeah, it was mainly the, it was mainly the climbing. That's, that's the thing that really turned me off of the vines. Yeah, that's fair. I think, was that introduced in New Growth? Yes, yes, that was introduced in New Growth. And again, it's part of the plot, but we'll get there. We'll get back to that. Um, That was actually the portion, there was something really frustrating for me, which was that I didn't realize that you could climb up that golden pipe that was in New Growth. Like that, like, kind of made me angry. It's like, oh. No one ever told me I could do this before because the game gave you like a lot of rules. You, you you know what I mean? Like you you understood your limits generally. But then I was like, oh, I just have to walk into this golden pipe, which takes you up to the fire hose, which I loved. Yeah. it. So we're introduced to climbing in scaffolding. So we mm-hmm, see ladders yes. and eventually we see monkey bars and they're all golden. So it took me a minute to figure out to climb the golden pipe. But it, I, I agree with you. It's not, it wasn't intuitive right off the bat. Also, when I was climbing that golden pipe, I had the thought, like, this Monroe kid has the strength of a, of, of a feral, a, a feral human child. Yes. Just ab- absurdly strong. Oh, yeah. I don't a little, know. A little too strong. <laughs> well, no. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's, yeah, it's still really quite strong. I'm sitting here like, well, if he's like, eight years old and is kind of like a little rail of a kid, then there's not much to move. But like at the same time, he probably isn't that developed from a muscular standpoint. So yeah, and you got to figure too, he's climbing the vines in that, 
rod and such, and you're still able to throw ink and throw balloons. So you'd assume that he's one-handed at some point. Doctors hate him because of this one trick. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> my favorite my favorite version of that pop-up ad by far is the one of the Italian chef and it's like this bellissimo son of a mama. <laughs> and it's like click here and then the link real tiny says the moon hit your eye. Oh no. It's so that's, good. That's amazing. Maybe I'll post I'll I'll post that on the Instagram in addition to a picture of this. Just, I think you should. Just because. <laughs> you should do it now, though, so that whenever people see it, they go, why did he share that? And then when they see the episode, they go, oh, that's why he shared it. And then maybe they'll comment on this um, anywhere that podcasts are found and say, wow, now I get it. And no one will know except for us and them. Wow. Well, the only way for them to find out is to listen to this episode. Yep. Uh, never a dull day with this show. No, it's an inside joke. We get a little crazy here at Pixel Project Radio. He <laughs> A little wacky. Um, ben, you mentioned we're talking about the vines. One of, and you alluded to this. The main mechanic for the vines is that now that you have water balloons, you're tossing your water balloons into the vines to get them to grow. And this replaces the ink in in a certain way because your water balloons evaporate. When you throw them, you can still see like the walls and the floors and the furniture, but they evaporate pretty quickly. The vines, if you like really choose to, will grow all over the place. And in a certain way, that that sort of gives you the lay of the land that the ink did, but in a different way. It goes back to really your thesis statement, Ben, started as better than perfect because you're never going to get everything covered, but you can you can start and that's good. Yeah, and this game is forgiving with the things that you want to try to do, you know? Yeah, yeah, more more or less it's pretty forgiving. There's yeah, you're right. I mean, you have you have room to try things and uh, as long as you don't fall into the water, have the loudest splash ever and then hear the sound of a child coughing water out of their lungs, you know, like that that was kind of hard and weird. Yeah, outside of the music, the sound design is generally really good except for that and the rocket ship. There's like that rocket ship that you can make out of vines. Did you do that? Yes. Way too loud. Just way too loud. Yes. Uh, this uh, this unfinished empire, this is also where we meet a giant. Uh, I thought the giant was going to play a far larger part in the story, but, but it really, <laughs> thank you, but it really doesn't. Uh, he's really just kind of there. He's sleeping. You can throw water balloons at him if you want, but uh, and Monroe will giggle uh, because he's a psychopath, I guess. But uh. <laughs> no, he's just a kid. But he uh, he doesn't really play a part. You can get a storybook page about him that talks about how uh, he's not only lazy, but it's his day off, so of course he's sleeping, which made me wonder what his job was as a giant. But I guess that's neither here nor there. Yeah. But he doesn't really do much uh, in terms of the story. He's just kind of there as uh, flavor. Yeah, he's really, I mean, they mention him in the story, right? But like, he really is just part of the atmosphere. And like, you know, you're trying to basically climb to a really, really high point in this chapter um, to achieve a flying ship of sorts. And, you know, I don't know about you, Rick, but I was like, oh, the giant's going to get involved somehow. Nope. 
Yeah, not at all. And yeah, I suppose we we did neglect to mention that as we're following the swan, we do see like flying ships, like ships with balloons attached to them. And that's where we want to get so we can better chase the swan. Uh, And we do, we do get to them. But once we get to our flying ship, we go into a cloud chasing the swan. And I guess we crash because it says everything goes black. Yes. And that's after we do the bell tower portion of this chapter and everything goes black because we are in this new chapter called nighttime yeah nighttime made up of the woods the river home the nursery and the king's monument Mm -hmm. this chapter especially the woods felt like it was a real left turn and a good one it felt like it fit yeah i i am all about it um This one is interesting because you are now in pitch black. You are in the dark, and there are these, like, bioluminescent fruits that are hanging around. They look like lanterns, but also I think they might be fruits. I'm not really sure. Kind of like eggplant-looking things, or uh, pear tomatoes, yellow pear tomatoes. Yeah, but you give them a bonk with your your, uh, projectile, and they kind of move and light up the area, which is good because this area has the first and only enemies in the game. Yep. And they are spiders. You can see the spiders in the shadows. They've got like little red eyes and they look pretty creepy, honestly. And they hurt you if you're outside of the light. Yeah, it's 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 weird. Like if you're outside of the light, the corners of your screen will flash red and this ominous music starts playing and it gives you a sound effect of being hit and like three red slash marks will appear on your screen. It's it's tonally, it's very different. Yes, yes. And the, the point is to stay into the light in this chapter and to create light and to move light even um, as there's a ball that we have to move into a river. A ball literally of light. I, I love the ball. I love that. I, I agree with you. I thought the ball mechanic was neat. Uh, it's like this little orb. Uh, that you need to ponder and poke around. And it's, again, it's bioluminescent. So you're hitting it with your projectiles and making it move up shoots and uh, traversing the terrain. And Ben, as you said, it goes into the water. So you have to follow it. It's it's pretty cool. I liked it. Yeah. This leads us into the river section, which is continuing to follow the ball of light down the river and keep up with it because If the light leaves you behind, or rather if you stay behind, you'll get more of them spiders coming after you. Um, And the ball of light does get stuck sometimes on trees and rocks, so you have to keep moving it, which is kind of funny, isn't it, Rick? The fact that you have to move the ball of light away from you in order to progress it, but you have to stay with it to be safe. I mean, again, it goes back to the idea of the journey over the destination. The mm. journey is never going to be perfect, and neither is this section. Yeah. Th- this did also make me think about the one criticism I have of the game is that you need a dedicated run button. Yeah. Like, I not see. even sprint. Just like, I just needed a little more pep in the step here. I mean, and as a child in the woods, in the dark, I would I would probably run. I would certainly be running because there are spiders chasing me. Yeah. For goodness sake. At the end of the river is this house 
which leads us to the next portion of this chapter called Home. I really enjoyed this, and I would love to hear your thoughts. This was my favorite part by far. I, I mean, except yeah. except the very end of the game, but I mean, this this was my favorite part to play. Tell me more about that. Well, I was going to say, did you want to talk about the special new orbs we get or special new projectiles we get? Um, I was hoping that you would because you'd, you'd kind of alluded to them a little bit earlier in, in the uh, all the things we get to do. And if it's your favorite, by all means. Well, just to circumvent you and I going back and forth forever saying no after you. LOL. I, w- I, I will describe them. Um, so these new ones, they're they're kind of unique. You've got special plat or not special platforms. You've got special surfaces in the section called home, wherein you can throw your paint and it will be marked by a number one. And then you can have the option of throwing another paintball that looks different color with the number two. And between the two, you'll see this sort of Microsoft Paint-esque rectangle being formed and at first you might think like i don't know what this is but once you throw ball number two then you have the option to take this new rectangle and either pull it out or pull it up thus creating steps and platforms to help you traverse these levels because now these levels there are no steps or stairs or chutes or ladders you've got to create your own so this is now verging into the create-your-own-fun territory, and I think that's incredible. I agree, and and something worth mentioning to kind of augment what Rick's saying here is that we the house, the, the home, as it were, which is full of story in and of itself, is basically empty, and it's through entering these portals, basically, that we create these platforms that then show up at the home, you know what I mean? Like, like it's sort of like a parallel universe thing. I don't know how to describe it, but um, what we make in one dimension appears in the home. So like if there's um, a floor missing, when we make those rectangles that Rick talked about, they will end up in the home that we're trying to get through. Yeah, and I think alternate universe is, is exactly right. It's a, it's a good way to describe it because the physical home that we're in is dark and, you know, falling apart. When we hop into these portraits that are sort of a stark white contrast, that's where we're making our platforms and stairs and such. And then, as you said, they transfer over. It's a it's a really unique mechanic, and I'm really glad they stuck with it for at least a moment for the rest of this chapter because it's I, I I'm always a fan of creating your own level, like mm-hmm. to progress through the game. I just think that's fun. Yeah, and this was a nice touch. This was. You know, I was not expecting it, and I thought it worked. I thought it worked well. I thought it worked well. I would agree. After home, we end up in this little segment called nursery. And to be honest, I almost remember nothing of nursery. I think this section is just sort of foreshadowing what comes next. We're we're seeing a a literal home, and the nursery is showing you the child's portion of said home. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and this is important because we are almost to the end game where we sort of get the whole story pieced together if we hadn't figured it out already. 
But to do that, we need to climb up the King's Monument. And this is sort of the last playable, quote unquote, section of the game. Yes, which climbing up the King's Monument is not just out of curiosity, but also out of the fact that like, there's a flood and we've got to go. Yeah, the flood starts because we disable the king's sort of security system, which turns out to be a lemon <laughs> that is powering uh, this electricity. But when we do that, the alarm sounds and a flood begins, and we have to climb up and up and up really quickly to get away from the flood, and the music is getting more anxious and active here too. And climbing up, we're largely in the shadows, so we have to make use of light to see the outlines of like the stairs and and the platforms and such. I I thought this was great. This was a lot of fun. And visually quite captivating and forces you to not make the world but like understand the world. Yeah. Yeah, it it again another turn out of left field. Uh but really cool to have this sort of as the last bit of the game before we get into the ending and you know, it was it was appropriately fast-paced. It didn't feel hectic, and it didn't feel too overwhelming. I don't think I died here at all. I, I died a little bit in the Vine levels, as I said, but I don't think I died here. Um, no, I lied. I did die here once because there's a section where you're climbing upstairs, and then you have to wait for the water to rise and mm. jump on a table. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, I just stood there <laughs> and then the water rose to my feet and it still made the splashing sound and you could hear him coughing. Perfect. <laughs> and I died. Yeah. Uh, but no, that's that's super cool. Uh, you have to sort of wait for the level to catch up to you if you're going too quickly. And yeah, you're climbing all the way up until you get into the King's Monument, which is, uh, as you might have guessed, a giant monument of the king inside his head of which there is a room. And we've been able to see this room from afar before, and inside the room is the king himself. But not just the king, his pet hippo as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if I missed something, but uh, I, I was like, why is there a hippo here? I forget why. I, I thought I saw something in the story about that, but... Um, maybe in the statue garden, I believe there's a hippo. I There's definitely a hippo statue. Maybe there are some optional storybook pages that you can find, like like the giant, for example. I think I may have just missed the hippo bit because I don't remember that. I don't remember that at all. No, no. <sighs> so this this next chapter is called, and it's so fast, so fast that I'm not really remembering much about it, which is, the king's dream and we have the beginning the middle and the end those are your segments and they are all extremely brief um though I, rick i i'm i laughed a lot whenever the king's dream featured um and actually kind of broke the fourth wall a little bit and called out the fact that in the dream was um the credit sequence well, yeah, this whole ending is a playable credit sequence, uh, which is super cool. You don't get playable credit sequences very much anymore. No, you don't. I think, you know, so many games want to be movies. You know, thinking about um, Quantic Dream, like um, that produce literal games that are movies, um, which also have horrible writing, but that's just my opinion. It, it's 
I don't know, sometimes it's okay for games to be games and having playable credits, even if it's just walking, pretty cool. Yeah, I don't mind it, but I like that. Sorry, go ahead, sorry. I was just going to say I liked it, that's all. We should also mention that the king is voiced by who? Terry... Oh, who is it? Terry Terry Gilliam. Yeah, you know Terry Gilliam. He's from Monty Python. I was going to say, it seemed very familiar. I couldn't name him off the top of my head. Yeah, Terry Gilliam. He was the... Uh, I believe he was the illustrator for Monty Python. That... That sounds and feels right. Yeah, because there were two Terrys, Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones, and I believe Terry Gilliam was the illustrator. He didn't. He did some on-screen acting, but he mainly did those really iconic illustrations. Hmm. He he's under some fire lately. He's he's said some like very boomer esque things in the past. His he he recently on Facebook made a big post to like all of his followers, which you know there are tons to check out the Dave Chappelle special, um, sort of promoting it as being really provocative and genius. And then uh, a production that he was going to direct got canceled because he did that. Um, And he went on this big thing about how, like, you know, free speech is under attack and all that. It's it's a little bit unfortunate that, you know, some of our comedy heroes turn out to be a little less progressive than we would hope, but... Terry Gilliam sounds like he's turned into a nasty guy. Uh, yeah, he's he's had some comments before. Like, he, he made this whole thing where, like, he joked about identifying as a black lesbian. And it's like, it's like, man, I, I, I get what you're trying to do. Like, your whole career has been being silly. But at a certain point, it can be hurtful, you know? Well, it's 2021. We've come a long way. And, like... Don't get me wrong, but you should also know better. Like, the world is watching. Yeah. Well, we still have Eric Idle and John Cleese, and they're still mm. active in Treasures, so Yes, that's they good. are. But, Rick, I don't really... I mean, it really is like a, a walk-through credit sequence that I feel is really more than anything augmented by the story, so I don't know what else to really say about, about the story. It's, I mean, about the actual playing through the game itself. Well, I think this would be a perfect time to sort of pull a Star Wars now that we're in medias res and go back and tell the story from the beginning before we finish it. I think that's a great idea. So as we mentioned, uh, you are playing as Monroe. Your mother has unfortunately passed away, and we are chasing the unfinished swan throughout this fantasy kingdom. Now, we mentioned earlier that you find storybook pages as you go on. The storybook pages tell a story of a king, and this king is like super arrogant and... He thought that no color was good enough for his garden, so he left everything white. Mm-hmm. However, 
his kingdom started to attract settlers as he pondered new colors and settlers started painting everything and the king didn't like that mm-hmm. so after after the the sequence that takes place in the garden we find ourselves um you know in the new castle area with we talked about this chapter where there's the scaffolding um there's the the sea wall is here all of that stuff so so basically the king is really into making pots and He's made all these pots, but the citizens who have arrived and who are now there um, needed a place to go to the bathroom. So they started peeing in his pots, and that he did not like that very much. And <laughs> yeah, I when it, when this was being told in the story, I remember being vastly confused. Like, is this really going to be some sort of what's the word I'm looking for? Some sort of conflict? Sure as shit. Literally and figuratively, <laughs> hey it, it, it was. I think I think they wanted to highlight this because, like, they the citizens said that the king ha- was so austere in his ruling, which is a five dollar word that means strict, and it sounds better than strict. You're welcome, everybody. Yeah. Uh, that he was he was just so austere in his ruling uh, that they didn't have anywhere to go to the bathroom, so they started using his pots. I, I think they just wanted to highlight that the king. Uh, you know, at this point in time, is not a good person. No, he's kind of narcissistic and trouble troublemaking. Um, but he responds by actually creating something good, which is like this kind of sewer system. Like, okay, that's that's kind of nice. Um, it's in this chapter that we also learn that like the king is tired of people kind of being able to traverse the area easily. So this is why the maze exists and people get lost in there for a very, very long time in, in that labyrinth. You know, he, he plants these vines, but people water them too much. Yeah. He's just, he's just a grouch and he wants left alone so that he can love and admire himself. Um, and that's, that's kind of the summary of chapter two is that the King's kind of a nasty guy. Yeah. He, he dislikes the vines so much that he makes a concoction out of like paint thinner, spite, and some other stuff, I think it says, and just sprays the vines with that, but it turns them into like a snapping monster. And I yes. think they attack him a little bit, so he stops doing that. So he gets a little bit of his comeuppance there. But um, I don't think that's the right usage of that phrase, but you know what I mean. I knew exactly what you mean. So as we know, we get in the flying boat thing, and it crashes, and we find ourselves in the chapter of nighttime. And uh, this is whenever we start to kind of get a look into the king's more intimate existence, I would say. Wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. We learn that the king was never good with other people, uh, but he is lonely. So he paints himself a wife, and perhaps unsurprisingly, he realizes that it's just a, a gender-swapped version of himself. And falls in love uh, with this opposite uh, version of him. It, I mean, it, it's kind of narcissist looking into the river. That's, I would say that's exactly how it is. And the house, the home that we find is the house that they lived in. And uh, nursery is because, uh, boop, boop, and, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, she becomes with child uh, because they fuck and... <laughs> <laughs> However, uh right before she gives birth, 
she runs away. Um, and this is this is just piecing it together based on interviews with the writer. Uh, but she runs away and somehow ends up in the real world where she gives birth to Monroe. Uh, and obviously the king is pretty heartbroken about this. He uh, he goes into a, a, an actual depression and he goes to sleep, which puts him in a sort of coma because he begins having dreams that he can't wake up from because he is so sad. I mean, come on. Like, that sucks. Like, that that's... That was an empathy trigger for me. It was very sad to read that and to hear that. Yeah, I I am always all for humanizing villains within reason. Same. Most evil things are just misunderstood. Those last two words are doing some heavy lifting, but you know. Which two words? Within reason. Ah, yes. Okay, okay, okay. That's fair. That's fair. So, So this makes the moment that we meet the king all the more, you know, powerful because... That's your daddy. And it's interesting. I was I, in that same interview with the writer I mentioned, he said that they intentionally kept some stuff vague. And one of the things like like he said, it is canon that you are the king's son and that the queen was your mother and that she escaped to the real world. What they left intentionally blank is whether or not the king knew that, you, that that's who you were because he never calls mm, you son mm-hmm. and he never you know, reveals that he knows that's who you are. He refers to you as the boy in his dream. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, I mean, that's kind of beautiful in a way. That's one of the the great things about minimalist art and minimalist interpretations is that it, it leaves so much up to the consumer. We, we've talked about this before, I, I believe, on the show. But, you know, once an artist creates a work and it's out in the ether it's it's out of the artist's hands how people interpret it. Like you can't force people to interpret things a certain way, and artists that embrace that, like like the writers here, I think that's just terrific. So I I think that's I just think that's so cool. There's a healthy balance, right? Like the art the artist's intent matters, but at the same time, there are other ways to to bend a phrase or to you know, highlight certain elements of something visual. Um, yeah. yeah. Of course. there. I mean, there is a healthy balance. We've talked about this with music before, right? Like, it, it is equally mm-hmm. bad to say, well, the artist's intent doesn't matter because they're dead or because I'm the performer, as it is to say, you must respect the artist's wishes on everything, always. <laughs> yep, you have to follow everything to the T. Yeah, both equally problematic in, in an interpretive medium. Yes. Yeah. But so basically the king who is is finally who finally wakes up um recounts this very strange dream that he'd had. You know, he says, "Oh, yes, you're you're the boy from my dreams." Um and he has to accept that his works and the world that, you know, is around him won't be around forever and will eventually fade away. It's, and this is all happening in this credit sequence. Yeah. So this dream, it's really touching. So the King begins to recount his dream to you. He says it starts in that room and he points to a portrait and we're taken into this really almost realistic sketch of a room, still black and white the king hears a knock at the door, but when he opens it up, 
it's just white. It's just like where we started. As he walks forward, he says, disaster struck. Some miscreant was wandering around the kingdom painting everything black. And it turns out it's the stuff that you were doing in the beginning. So it's sort of you're playing along as part of the king's dream. The king's talking head says that your statue head, I should say, says that you're going for the garden. So you're you're going forward. Eventually, you find yourself inside in the banquet hall. And you say to yourself that you, you, this is the happiest I've been in a while. But then all of a sudden, everything goes dark. And it's scary, and no one's actually there. And then you happen across, the king does, your funeral. And it's just you lying in a casket. And you say to the boy, nobody was there except for you. And it's interesting here, mm. because as you approach the casket of the king, you can see yourself in the reflection. It's Monroe. So the perception has somehow switched to Monroe, or perhaps there's another angle to be considered wherein Monroe and the king are one and the same. Hard to say. But anywho, you walk outside, and suddenly you begin growing and growing and growing like a giant. (laughs) And as you're walking, you're surveying your kingdom and all that you've built, your life's work. And the king makes a note saying that, he he would have to come to accept that although he was striving to build something that would last forever, this cannot be done. It, it just is not so. And just as he had come and built over those that built before him, somebody too would come and build upon what he had done. And as he gets so big and sees the universe ending, he says the following quote. He says, look at me now, Ma. I'm on top of the world. Wait, that's James Cagney in Public Enemy. He says, you know, as as the universe is ending, I looked back on all that I had built and I realized something. I wasn't sad that it was all gone. I had fun making all that stuff. I would have done it anyway. And this is sort of wrapping up this notion of, of the theme of the game that is the, the journey being more important than the destination. Um, this feeling of being unfinished because you well there there are numerous takes that we can go down on the unfinished route which maybe we can talk about but this idea of being unfinished because you haven't created something that is immortal is is a fool's pursuit and that life and its various pursuits have value within themselves just by doing them and just by existing and that that's one of the themes of the game just to wrap it up, the king decides to give you his silver paintbrush. Uh, he does mm-hmm. a little quote from the Iliad, I believe, where he says, I hope that uh, folks will remember you as being better than your father. Uh, so maybe hinting that the king does know. And you walk out mm-hmm. of the door with the unfinished swan. And the narrator comes back and says... That night, even though Monroe was very tired, he did something that would make his mother very happy. He painted. And you get this really beautiful ending of Monroe finishing the swan and giving it to little swan ducklings. Swanlings. Swanlings. Mm-hmm. And that that's how the game ends. It doesn't try to be anything more than it is. There's really not many fan theories to dig into here. It's just 
they kind of gave gave us the limits. They gave us the world. Um, and this is another one of those games, which I guess is going to become a theme on this show, where you know I I find myself crying as it's ending, but but in a in a weird like in a beautiful way. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. It's um just kind of like the shock of the end of Superliminal. You just sit there and go, "Wow, this is um." This is a message that really is is more for adults. Like sometimes the way to honor someone is to just, you know, carry on. And I'd be I'd be curious to to talk Ben about how you felt as you finished this game because I think the the characteristic of being unfinished carries a lot of different connotations here, and I I really want to just listen and hear what your thoughts were as you were, as you were wrapping this up. So something I struggle with is, you know, I I write music and something I struggle with is finishing a lot of pieces because I get my own way and I hold myself back. And I should say that they are doubly unfinished because a lot of them are just in graphite and paper. I think part of me feels safe that way. Um, but whenever I, which is not how it's supposed to be right. Um, it's supposed to be a vulnerable act, this creating and sharing. Um, I, I found in this game, you know, this ending, it kind of felt like it was like looking at me like, paint, Ben, come on. Like, I don't know. I, I felt like it reached through, kind of grabbed me and, and, and held my head, not in a violent way, but just in a, you know, this, this analysis paralysis is, it, it's a real thing that happens. And from a personal standpoint, not just an artistic one, you know, the best parts of those who've gone on before us live on in us. So, you know, it's it's important that we, that those who helped shape us, it's important that we carry that torch. And that's that's what Monroe does, right? He he finishes the swan. He paints. And I think that latter aspect, while while I agree and can empathize with with the first thread that you went down. I think that latter aspect is an interesting one because the entire game we're searching for this unfinished swan, this this memory of of his late mother, and we eventually find the answers that we're seeking through the help of our presumed father. And this idea of and and that ending quote of, you know, I I hope that you will be remembered as a better man than your father was. And this idea, this notion of those that come before us, their best bits live on within us. I think that's an interesting angle that, that we can, I think that's an interesting lens through which we can view this game, right? This idea of generational worth or generational experiences. Mm -hmm. We don't have children, so that's how we're approaching this (laughs) I mean so take that for for what you will but like you know as people who've had musical students and such you know what I mean to to know that like we've left some level of imprint on them and to you know hope that they're sitting there saying oh you know what I'll never forget that you know Rick taught me blank or that oh I'll never forget when Ben showed me how to do this passage whatever um, there's something that kind of makes you, I don't want to say makes you feel like immortal in like an arrogant way, but you sit there and go like, 
wow, I, I made a difference and someone is taking something that is meaningful to me and perpetuating it in a good way. But that's that, that's what the king wants, right? He wants you to be, he knows that you'll be a better man. And that's exactly what you're doing, right? You, you, you've heard this story, you've seen these perspectives and it's time for you to take the goodness that came with the king and with your mother and make make the world kind of a better place? I don't know. I, I don't know. That that angle of of students that you brought up, Ben, is is interesting because, you know, it doesn't have to, this idea of living on in the next generation doesn't have to be just biological. Um, one thing that we didn't right. mention is that the king, just like Monroe's mom, was an artist. Like, he paints. There are paintings of him painting himself, of him painting himself all throughout here, which is why the passing on of the brush is significant. But, you know, there there's a saying that, that gets passed around a lot, that the first death is biological, the second death is the final time your name is spoken. I, I think, I like that sentiment, but I think a third quote-unquote death can be realized insofar as one's influence. So going down the student angle that you brought up, you know, we are not permanent. We are very impermanent. And much as we may not like it, we will pass. But our memories, whether they are concrete or uh, more ethereal, such as our teachings, will live on in the next generation. That's those best bits that you mentioned. I, I think there's something beautiful to that. I think so too. And it's like what the king is saying, right? The king says that the, the kingdom is going to eventually fade away. But the king is aware that Monroe can paint a new story, paint a different story in a different life. So Monroe has been given the power by his dad, whether you know we realize that directly or not, um, saying, you know, take something that's a part of me and do good with it. Like, wow, okay. Yeah, and doing it, solely for the sake and enjoyment and enrichment of doing it, not to create a lasting impact or no, not impact, not to create a lasting impression insofar as being remembered or anything in the realm of ego. It's an egoless sort of, you know, do the, do the good for the sake of the enrichment and enjoyment of doing the good or the fun or whatever adjective you'd like to use. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. I don't know. That's like all all of those different sort of interpretations as the game was ending sort of in in a smoky, not entirely concrete way kind of all hit me at once. And I, I think that's why why the tears started. But I I don't know. I just I really think that this game is not talked about enough anymore. No, and it could experience a resurgence as we've seen with so many games, but it's it's a message that, I don't know, anybody who's dealing with a grieving process, um, this has something for you. It really does. And I'm not saying that as an unlicensed therapist. I'm saying that as somebody who has lost a number of people who have been significant, including parents. Yeah, of course. It, it's Again, it goes back to the brilliance of children's authors creating lasting messages that exist beyond themselves without pretentious language in a digestible way for anybody that can be viewed through multiple lenses 
And that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Perspective is reality. There it is. <laughs> All you have to do is wake up. That's right. That's the end of The Unfinished Swan. We sincerely hope that, you know, you've listened to this entire episode, but I don't think we'd be upset either if you stopped at the beginning when we were giving you spoiler warnings, played the game, and then came back and listened to the rest. We also would like that. Of course. Yeah, this this is definitely a game that warrants playing through as blind as possible. Agreed. Just as we wrap this up, uh, I don't have a review this week because there aren't any new ones. But if you wanted to, you could contribute a new one, uh, preferably a good one, uh, but hopefully an honest one. And we will read it on air. The ways that you can do that are through Apple Podcasts or Podcast Addict. That's where we're going to see them. Mm-hmm. We're also now on Good Pods. I finally got around to putting us on there. I forgot Good Pods even existed. I'm not even sure how big it is, if it's a big thing or what, but uh, we're on there now. So that's fun. Mm-hmm. I don't, I, I've never even heard of Good Pods. It's, uh, they've got some Good Pods, is my understanding. I hope to God. I hope so, my gosh. But what are some other ways they could get in contact with us? Oh, you know, there are a few things. If you've heard of Instantgram, you can find us on Instantgram. Pixel Project Radio Podcast is our handle there, if I'm not mistaken. That's that's the um, one. We have a Twitter. We don't really use it. It's Pixel Project Radio Pod, right? It's Pixel Project Pod, I believe. But uh, I am going to try to start using that more. I'll, I'll start tweeting more and mm. see if uh, we can build the ranks slowly but surely. Oh, oh, we can, um, and we will. Um, what else we got? How else can they get us? You can write us a good old-fashioned electronic mail by shooting it over to pixelprojectradio at gmail.com, and as Josh Clark would say, give it a spank on the bottom, send it on over, Wow! and we'll read it. Uh, maybe not on air, depending on what the content is, but we'll read it and probably reply. Uh, and then, as always, our Discord, which you'll find the link to in the episode description. That's right, everybody. I think that covers all our bases today, Rick. That covers all of our bases. So go forth, uh, take this beautiful message that we discussed in this game, and live life for the experience, for you only get one. Focus on the moment, and focus on those moments that bring you joy. And know that life is more than just giant monumental so-and-sos. Take that, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>